verse 1, says, Six days before the Passover. Everybody say the Passover. The scripture is careful to tell us that the events of the text take place six days before the Passover. Now, the Passover was a massive celebration. Think of it as a major holiday that we observe. And it had been celebrated by Jews for over a thousand years by the time we get to this text. The Passover began as a religious festival, a holy set apart time of remembrance and thankfulness for God's deliverance. But by the time Jesus comes on the scene, roughly a thousand or so years after the first Passover, the Passover had mostly morphed into just a cultural holiday, um, a cultural expression of Jewish pride, uh, national pride, you know, and uh, their history. And when you divorce religious worship from its meaning, you end up with cultural expressions of faith, but no power. I'm going to say that again. When you divorce religious ceremony and religious worship, when you divorce it from its meaning, you end up with cultural expressions of faith, but no power. For instance, there's a lot of people that wear a cross around their neck, but they have no idea what the cross they're wearing around their neck really means. And when the cross around your neck is divorced from its meaning, it's just a trinket hanging around your neck. A lot of people like Christian music and sing worship songs, but when the worship song that you're singing is divorced from its meaning and you really don't understand what you're participating in, then it's just a song. There's no power. There's nothing real behind it. When it comes to God, meaning matters. And so to the people, the Passover had just become another national holiday. And it got famous. People from other neighboring countries would come in to celebrate and see this big spectacle. But Jesus was about to remind them all that the Passover has a deep meaning to God. What was the original meaning? What was the original principle regarding the Passover? Well, it was very simple. The Passover was a redemptive promise of God that provided salvation by substitution. That shouldn't say salvation and substitution. It, it, it's salvation by substitution. Everybody say salvation, salvation. By, by substitution. Okay. And so it's a time where God substitutes innocence for guilt and mercy instead of judgment. And everyone thinks of when you say the Passover, everyone thinks of either the cross or the Passover in Egypt where the Hebrews put the lamb's blood on the door. But really, Passover is just a principle, and God has been operating by this principle ever since the beginning, ever since the first sin was committed. When Adam and Eve committed the first sin, if you go back to the instruction, God said in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, he told Adam and Eve, look, every tree in the world, eat as much as you want. But this one tree, this is my tree. Don't touch this tree. Don't eat of this tree. For in the day, in the day that you touch it, in the day that you eat it, you're surely going to die. So God's word had given them a commandment. God's word had given them a judgment attached to the commandment if they broke it. And when the day they ate of that fruit, they were supposed to die. They deserved judgment. But that day, God came down, and instead of killing them, God killed two lambs. And he wrapped Adam and Eve in the skins of the lambs that gave their life for them. 
What was that? It was salvation by substitution. God took the innocence that was on the lambs and put it on Adam and Eve and took the guilt that was on Adam and Eve and put it on the lambs and killed the lambs while they held their guilt. What was it? Salvation by substitution. The next Passover in the Bible, you see Abraham and Isaac. It's a popular story. The father is taking his son up the mountain to sacrifice him. God had told him to sacrifice his son. He lays him out on the altar. He's getting ready to bring the knife down. An angel stops his hand and says, look behind you. There's a ram tied up by his horns in a thicket. And so all of a sudden, the death that was supposed to pass to Isaac passed over him onto the ram. And the innocence and the life that was on the ram passed to Isaac. What was it? Salvation by substitution. Then the next Passover in the scripture is the namesake. It's where the Hebrews are enslaved in Egypt. And God sends a methodology of judgment that's embodied and personified by a death angel. Really, the death angel was just bringing judgment because that's the wages of sin. The wages of sin results in death. So the death angel was told by God, listen, I don't want you to discriminate. I want you to make sure that death visits every house in Egypt. So the death angel, so you know, was going to visit everyone's house in Egypt to make sure death comes to every house. But then God tells Moses, if the people would like to be saved, tell them to go get a lamb. Tell them to kill it and put its blood on the doorpost and the lintel. And whenever I see the blood, I'll tell the death angel to pass over. Why? Because death has already visited that house. Not the death of the people inside, but the death of the lamb. What is that? Salvation by substitution. Now, it's important that you grasp this because this ancient principle, salvation by substitution, is the same principle that God used to save you. Jesus dying on the cross for our sins is God's ancient principle of salvation by substitution. All of the judgment that he made pass over us was made possible because there was a substitute sacrifice that saved us. Have you ever thought? You ever thought about all the things God made pass over you? See, self-righteous, prideful people think that destruction passed over their life because they grew up or they pulled themselves up by the bootstrap. So they finally matured and they worked real hard. But real Christians know it wasn't nothing but the blood of Jesus. It was salvation by substitution. He died. So that people who deserved judgment could receive mercy. And he died effectively. Jesus died so effectively that the Bible said the sun refused to shine. A great darkness came over the land. Jesus died so effectively that the ground itself began to shake when it looked up at it. Jesus died so effectively that the Roman soldier who had put him on the cross stood there shaking his head and said, surely this man was the son of God. Jesus died so effectively that the veil in the temple that separated God's presence from man was torn from the top to the bottom. Jesus died 
so effectively that the law tripped over and fell into grace. Jesus died so effectively that all of your sins, the sins you have committed, the sins you are committing, and the sins that you will commit, all your sins, the penalty and the punishment for them all was paid in full because he died effectively. He died so effectively that after he died and rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, Jesus sat down. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament priesthood, the priests were not allowed to ever sit down because they were taught by God that salvation is continuous work. You always have to work. You always have to work. But when Jesus died as our high priest, he died so effectively that when he got back up to heaven, he sat down. He said, all the work that will ever need to be done to save Save them, forgive them, redeem them, deliver them, heal them, restore them. All the work that will ever need to be done is done. It is finished. And he sat down. He died effectively. Did you know that when Jesus was at the whipping post, that, that he was being beaten and the stripes on his back were providing healing for diseases that hadn't even been discovered yet while they were beating him? That means he don't have to come back to the earth when you get some new diagnosis and go to the whipping post again. The blood was enough. In fact, I got a prognosis for your new diagnosis. By the stripes of Jesus Christ, whatever it is, wherever it is, by the stripes of Jesus Christ, you have access to healing right now because he died effectively. Everybody push somebody to say effectively, effectively in layman's terms, Jesus, in layman's terms, Jesus, uh, in layman's terms, Jesus traded places with us. Bible says he had no sin. We had no righteousness. So the righteous one took on our sins so that the unrighteous ones could take on his righteousness. And he traded places with us so effectively. See, if you ever really grasp this revelation, you'd never go to God ashamed because he traded places with us. In fact, he traded places so effectively that he, would, he said, when you go to God, don't use your name. But whatsoever you ask the Father in my name, he traded places so effectively, he gave us his name. Said, whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do it all in the name of Jesus. That's why in the New Testament church, we are saved by the name of Jesus. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord in faith shall be saved. We're baptized in the name of Jesus. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We pray in the name of Jesus. We lay hands and agree in the name of Jesus. We worship the name of Jesus. Why? It was the name given to us when he traded places with us. Traded places with us. 
He traded places with us. That means when you go to God and pray, he don't even know what you're talking about when you're in all that guilt and all that shame. When you go to God and you pray, God sees you as the one who traded places with you. That's why even if you're going through a rough patch, even if your faith is at an all-time low, even if you've had some failures and made some mistakes, you can still have boldness to approach the throne of grace and obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Because if you don't have faith in nothing else, if you still got faith in the name of Jesus, if you still got faith in the fact that he traded places with you on the cross, you can fall on your knees in any condition and say, Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. All of that, okay, all of that, all of it, everybody say all of it, all of it's the Passover, okay, you, you got to see that. All of that was, was ratified and sealed and handed over and made available to us because of God's principle of the Passover, which is salvation by. So the text in John 12 wants us to know that it was six days before all that stuff I just talked about was about to happen. Six days before the ultimate Passover where the Lamb of God, Jesus, our Passover Lamb, would lay down his life on the cross. It was six days before and Jesus is in a bad mood. The weight of his sacrifice is pressing down on him. And we see, as I said before, we see him doing strange things. He walked by the temple and he saw people serving in the temple that had divorced the protocols and the acts of worship. They had divorced them from their meaning. Because anytime you divorce a worshipful act from its meaning, it loses power. So Jesus saw people selling sacrifices in the temple. The, the people in the law, they were commanded to come with a sacrifice. But the temple had wanted to turn it into a prophet. And so they would sell turtle doves and goats and lambs and bulls so that the people didn't have to be inconvenienced. See, the law told the people to bring a sacrifice so that all the way on the journey from your house all the way to the temple, you had to carry the thing that you knew was going to give its life for you. God meant for you to develop some kind of mental connection and heart connection, leading this living thing down the road, knowing that when you get to this temple, that something alive now has to die then so your sin can be covered. But the temple wanted to take that inconvenience out of it because the Passover had just become a festival. It had just become a big holiday. So they were inviting as many people in, you know, get them in, get them out, get them in, get them out. This is a business. And they're selling sacrifices. Jesus walks in and sees it. He's disgusted. And he walks over and he flips the tables over. And he takes a bull whip and he starts beating people out of the church. He's in a bad mood. He walks by and he's hungry. He sees a fig tree, pulls a branch down, another, another, another. There's no figs. He stands back and he curses the fig tree. I believe he used some choice words too. That's my personal feeling. 
But when Jesus cursed it, the Bible said it shriveled up and died. He's doing strange stuff. Because he's up under the weight and up under the pressure of what he's about to do for you and I on the cross. And in verse 20, the scripture says that there were some Greeks. And they, they had heard about this amazing festival, the Passover. And they decided to do a, you know, religious pilgrimage, spiritual trip. You know, and they came over to Jerusalem and they were seeing the sights and the sounds and they were hearing the dancing and the music and the tambourines. And oh, it's marvelous to look at these people in their cultural expression of worship. And they had also heard about Jesus. You know, fellas, I hear there's a water walk over here. I, I hear there's a person who turns water into wine. I hear there's a person who multiplies bread and fish and heals the sick. I even heard that a few days ago he raised a man from the dead named Lazarus. Let's go see Jesus. So these Greeks come in verse 20 and they desire to see Jesus and 21. They come to Philip and, and they, they said, sir, we would like to see Jesus. Verse 22, Philip went to tell Andrew and Andrew and Philip in turn went to go tell Jesus. They went together because they were scared. He's in a bad mood. And they said, Jesus, the Greeks want to see you. Now, who are the Greeks? They're outsiders. They're strangers to the covenants of promise. They have no previously established relationship with God. Let me take a quick rabbit trail and help you understand why that's significant. The Jewish people, in other words, the descendants of Abraham, were entitled to Jesus. Okay. I know we hate entitled people. But the Jews were entitled to the Messiah, the Savior. Why? Because God had made a promise to Abraham that he was going to save his descendants, that he was going to deliver his descendants, and that he was going to gather Abraham's descendants to himself. Okay. Now, side note, when Jesus comes on the scene, he is the fulfillment of of God's promise to Abraham. And I just think it's so cool because God is honoring a promise to a dead man. If God ever gives you a promise, God will honor that promise. Even if you're laying in the grave, God will honor the promise that he gives you. So Jesus steps on the scene as the living, breathing fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham, and because the Jews are his descendants, they are entitled to what Jesus has to offer. That's why Jesus said, I am not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel or of the Jews. Now, the Greeks, they don't have nobody in their history or lineage with a previously established relationship with God. They don't have anybody among the Greeks or the Gentiles that walked with God like Abraham did and secured a covenant for future generations. The Greeks are pagans. They don't even worship the one true God. They have no doctrine. They have nothing but interest and hunger. And so they come and they knock on the door and they say, we would like to see Jesus. Disciples go, uh, Jesus, there's some 
some Greeks here to see you. My hour has come. Did he not take his meds today? No, no, Jesus, you may have misunderstood me. The, the Greeks, they're right outside the door. The Greeks are here to see you. My hour has come. Except a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, abides alone. But if it dies, it can bring forth much fruit, many seeds. So should we, uh, should we tell them to, to come back later? It's a strange response to a request. Now, the disciples, all of them, they're heirs of the promise and the covenant that God made to Abraham because they're all Jews. These Greeks, however, are not. And when Jesus blurts out all emotionally, the Greek says that, that it was said with great groaning and emotion. My hour has come. What hour? Jesus is telling the disciples, the hour has come that I will reveal to you that my plan was bigger than you thought. The hour has come to reveal that I'm not just interested in saving the Jews, but the arrival of the Greeks, the Gentiles announces, I don't want to just be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want to be the God of the Greeks too. I want to be the God of the Gentiles too. I want to be the God of every nation, anyone that will come and believe on me. And the arrival of the Greeks knocking on the door means they're knocking on the door of salvation and my hour has come. But then he never agrees to see him. He doesn't let the Greeks in until the cross. And at the cross, when they split open his side with that spear, God said, I'll take the Jews in. I'll take the Gentiles in. I'll take the Greeks in. I'll take the Asians in. I'll take every nation from the world in. I'll take the prostitutes in. I'll take the drug addicts in. I'll take the murderers in. I'll take the liars in. I'll take the adulterers in. I'll take the drug addicts in. I'll take abusive people in. I'll take people who aren't even good to their own children. I'll take them in. I'll take people people that aren't even good to themselves and abuse them. I'll take them in. When his side opened up, he would take them all in. But, but the Greeks are knocking before the door was open. So in answer to the question, why this strange saying, when they come and knock on the door to see you, why would you burst into tears and say, my hour has come and except a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies... Then it can bring forth much fruit. He's telling the disciples, the Greeks are here because they want to pick the fruit of salvation. But the problem, boys, is 
I'm still just a seed. The Greeks are here because they need a resurrected savior. But the problem is, boys, in order to have a resurrection, you first have to have a death. He's telling the disciples, I've gone as far as I can go in the current form that I'm in. Right now, I'm just like a grain of wheat, a seed. But if I will fall into the ground and die, if I will go through the transformation that is possible through a sacrificial death, then I can come up out of the ground in a new form and release the fruit of salvation these Gentiles need. Are you tracking with me? I want you to key in on the heart of that. He's saying, I've, I've gone as far as I can go without sacrifice. In order for me to get to the next level, the me that's in seed form has to be planted. When you plant a seed, the outer encasement is crushed that the inner life may be transformed and come up out of the ground in a form that looks different than the seed that it went in the ground as. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, all I've done in my ministry so far, I've done in seed form. But if I want to save the Greeks, if I want to reach out of the Jewish nation and pull in the other nations, I can't do it without making sacrifice. Jesus was, he was revealing this point that he was at the end. He was at the end of the road. I'm as blessed as I'm ever going to be without sacrifice. All right. I've done as much as I can do without making a sacrifice. If I want to open the door to the Greeks, there's, there's got to be a sacrifice. Jesus is wanting an ultimate harvest. He wants the world. But he knows in order to reap the ultimate harvest, first you got to sow the ultimate seed. Jesus knows not to expect a harvest where you haven't sown a seed. You can't make a withdrawal from a bank where you haven't made a deposit. Uh, sit there and look at me. It's going to get worse before it gets better. You can't take out what you haven't put in. But pastor, you don't know my need. I need so many things in my marriage. I need so many things in my finances. I need so many things in my health and with my children. The problem is need will never yield a harvest. Only seed can do that. 
And I preach this message to you because God revealed to me that there are many people in this room that you've gone as far as you can go without sacrifice. You've done as much as you are going to do without sacrifice. And you've been going to God asking him for an answer. And I came to tell you the answer is sacrifice. No sowing. No reaping. No seed. No harvest. No sacrifice. No reward. This principle goes beyond our faith and religion and works its way all the way down in the nooks and crannies of our personal life. Because so many people in this room are trying to reap where you haven't sown. We live in the midst of a narcissistic society. A selfish society permeates through our world. And if you're not careful, the overspray of it will get on you. How I feel, what I want, what's meeting my needs, what's not meeting my needs. And we tend to check out of anything that doesn't worship us because really we view ourselves as a God. We are so narcissistic and selfish, we think the world revolves around our happiness. And the reason that our generation fails in marriage and in careers and in ministry is because none of those things are designed for narcissistic people. It's all right. It's all right. I'm coming. You can't be a narcissistic mama and raise a well-adjusted, well-balanced child. You cannot be a narcissistic father and raise up generations that will rise up and call you blessed. It is impossible. You are trying to reap a good result from a bad seed. And things are messed up, and you have the nerve to go to God and pray about it and ask God why. And God said, The answer is except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it, if it, if, 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 if it, if it, if it dies. And the problem is, you know, everybody wants the results of sacrifice. I'm going to help you today. Everybody wants a lean, fit, healthy body. That's what I want. That's what I need. But need will never yield a harvest. Only seed will do that. And there you are with your need and your want, but you are not willing to make the sacrifice. So year after year, you continue to gain weight because you are not willing to sacrifice the munchies you put in your mouth in order to get what you want. 
and you got the nerve to cry about it and be hard on yourself over the way you look when the answer is everybody wants extra money in their savings account everybody needs extra money in their savings account but need won't yield a harvest only seed can do that. You know you need to build that thing up, but them new Jordans just came out. Gotta get my nails done. Don't look at me like that, ladies. You know it's the truth. Hiding them nail bills from everybody in the family so nobody knows what you spend. You want a successful marriage. You need a successful marriage. Everybody wants that. Nobody wants to come home and live in hell. What you think is just going to magically appear? In fact, some of you don't even need counseling. You need to just be willing to make Jesus knew, Jesus knew his purpose was intended by God to reach for more than just the Jews. But he did amazing things as just a seed. You know that? Some of you have done amazing things as just a seed. You know? It's a... Uh, it's kind of like this place that you get to is the place where outside help isn't going to get you there anymore. Uh. Jesus Christ walked on water because the power of the Father was holding him up. Jesus Christ raised Lazarus from the dead because the power of the Father was speaking his word through Jesus' throat. Jesus Christ told blind Bartimaeus, today the Father has sent me here to heal you. Jesus Christ did amazing things, but he grew to a place and a point where he had to go into a a decision that the father wasn't going to help with. In other words, no outside help. Prove that, preacher. Okay. Father! Why have you forsaken me? Where did you go? I left you, son, because this decision is all on you. You will come to some places in your life that you pray and you wrestle with God about why this thing has not advanced to the next level. Why this thing has not broken open. Why this thing isn't being used like you hoped and you dreamed it too. And God will whisper back to you through a thundering preacher. 
The answer is sacrifice. In other words, I've, I've taken you as far as I'm going to take you until you are willing to make. And see, I anticipated your cold response this morning because nobody likes Not even Jesus. What did Jesus say about his sacrifice? Father, if there's any way this bitter cup of sacrifice can pass from me, let it happen. And some of you have been praying that. You've been stuck praying that prayer for years. If there's any way I can get out of making this sacrifice. But see, what makes Jesus different from you and I? <laughs> is he said, nevertheless, not. That's the first step of sacrifice. It's not about. In the marriage, you ought to try saying it to yourself. When you get real mad at your spouse and they're annoying the devil out of you and you just want to just go stick your head through the wall, you should stop for a minute and say to yourself, you know what the truth is? It is not about. See all the people jumping up and clapping and running around the church this morning? That's how I know I'm preaching good. You won't remember it, but in the text, there's a beauty. You won't remember it, and I don't even blame you. But there's a beautiful juxtaposition between sacrifice and selfishness. The first part of the text is all about sacrifice because we've got Mary breaking open a bottle of spikenard worth a year's wages and just sacrifice and just pouring it all on Jesus. We got Martha going and serving all the tables, not eating herself, not in the presence of the Lord herself. She's sacrificing. We got Jesus who's receiving the sacrifice because he's about to be killed and then buried. First part of the text, the first three characters, it's all about, but then we got Judas He looks at the sacrifice that's being made. <coughs> he said, that's really a misappropriation of funds. We should have taken that, sold it, and just given it all to the poor. Be careful when you start to criticize the sacrifice of other people. Judas is criticizing the sacrifice because he's convicted by his own conscience that he's not willing to make one. And when you stay stuck in the position where a sacrifice is offered to you by God, but you refuse it slowly, but slow, slowly, but surely your soul begins to get infected with bitterness. And so, and so Judas starts to seek to serve and save himself. 
He serves himself by reaching in Jesus' money bag. Because when you seek to save yourself, you always have to make compromises. Okay? The road to self-salvation is paved with compromises. I'm going to say that again. One person might want to tweet it. The road to self-salvation is paved with compromises. So Jesus, Jesus, he's, he's warning Judas. He said it in the text. You won't remember it. You know, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life will, will save it. Sounds. I know how it sounds. In 2021 in San Antonio, Texas, talking to you as sharp as you are and professional as you are and good looking as you are and worldly as you are, you know, that, that sounds crazy. Oh yeah, he who seeks to lose his life will save it and he who seeks to save his life. But, 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 but Judas wasn't seeking to save his life like, like his soul. He was seeking to save the parts of his life that God was asking him to give up. Oh, I'm going to preach in this place. And because he was seeking, you know, he, he stole the money because he was seeking to save some financial parts of his life, the, the greed that God had told him to get over. He, he, he didn't want to cast down the spirit of greed, so he put his hand in Jesus' money bag to try to save the, the greed part of his life. He betrayed Jesus to try to save the self-preservation part of his life. The, the part of himself that sought to be his own covering and his own defense because he thought things were swinging away from Jesus and that politically he was going to be in trouble. But if he betrayed Jesus, that they would exalt him up on a higher level. He's seeking to save that piece of his life. People all over this room. You know, you know what happened to Judas? After the crucifixion, the Bible says he went out and hung himself and his guts fell out. His guts, his essence, his core, his purpose fell out because he tried to save pieces of his life that God said to get rid of. That's what you're doing, cheating on your spouse. You know what you're doing? You're trying to save your life. You're trying to save a piece of your life. That lust that God told you to get rid of. That, that sexual habit God told you to restrain. You're trying to save your own life. That passion, that romance that you long for. You're trying to recreate what you experience with people in your younger days. Because rom-coms lied to you and made you feel that that's what real love is. And now that you're in a real relationship with responsibility and family, heaven forbid you make a sacrifice. What you're doing is stepping out and going and looking to try to save a piece of your life. Trying to save your own life. And if you try to save your life, you'll That's what you're doing, stealing that money. That's what you're doing. That's what you're doing at work, spreading those rumors about those people. You're trying to protect yourself because you're trying to save that pride. You're trying to save your own life. And because you're trying to save your life, you're, you're losing it. That's why you make everything in your house a fight. 
when he comes home from work, the first step in the door, it's a, he stepped wrong. It's a fight. That's good, sir. I know it's good. He stepped wrong, and now it's a fight. And the reason is you want to save your life. You want to save that, that position of dominance you control over the relationship. You want to save those manipulation points so you can use it when you need it. You want to save that stuff up. What are you really doing? You're trying to save your life. Not giving those kids the time they need. And it's not because you don't have it. You're tired. You're exhausted. But you got the time. But you would rather watch TV. Why? What's the root of it? Trying to save your life. I gotta have a little piece of me time. work all day. I got to have something for myself. And that's why you talk to those people you ain't got no business talking to. That's why you flirt with those people you ain't got no business flirting with. That's why you mess around the way you mess around because in your heart and in your core, you're just desperately trying to save going through a quarter-life crisis, a quarter-life crisis. I mean, you're changing everything around. What are, you, what, are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? Things didn't turn out the way you expected, and you're trying to save. And you ain't no different than Judas. You came by Christian world this morning, stick your hand in Jesus bag and get a little bit more because you love the Lord and you love his presence and you know he's real, but you have made a decision to keep living on the edge and not make. And you've got the nerve to be so delusional that you started praying last week. And you said, God, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I need you to send me a word that will fix this thing. Give me an answer. And the answer is. Did you know that Judas didn't have to die? Did you know even after he betrayed Jesus? Judas really, when you think about it theologically, if you just if you want to take the story out of it and just compare legal offenses against the laws of God, Judas didn't do anything worse than Peter did. 
Peter, who was Jesus' closest disciple, denied him, cursed, and swore on his salvation. Peter literally said, may my soul be damned if I know him. Peter blasphemed, denied knowing the Lord, deserted him in his hour of greatest need. At least Judas got some money. Peter just did it to save his own neck. But Peter was restored. Judas was not. Because to the very end, he tried to save his own life. who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who seeks to lose it will save it. There's some stuff in your life you need to lose. This is a terrible Palm Sunday message. But it's the message God sent you, whoever you are, to help you out of this mess you're in. Jesus, can you, can you see? Jesus was reaching for Judas when he said it. Jesus knows Judas is going to betray him and sell him out, but he's reaching for him. Because when you belong to God, and Judas did, when you belong to God, God will always send you a warning. When you're one of his, he'll always send you a warning. And in the text, Jesus was responding to Judas. You know, when Judas said that we should have given it to the poor, Jesus said, you're going to have the poor with you always. And then Judas Judy, listen to me, Bubba. Judy, come here. Son, he that seeks to save his life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose it, if you lose it in the sacrifice, Jesus was preaching his own life to Judas about what Jesus was going to do. Jesus was saying, Judy, it's not too late, Bubba. It's not too late, but, but you got to be willing to come off the edge. You've got to be willing. And see, and see, when you know God as, as much as you do, God will give you nudges. He'll give you impressions. He'll raise things to your attention that you need to, to sacrifice. How long will you resist? How long will you harden your heart? How long will you keep walking? Knowing that you've gone as far as you can go. without sacrifice. I prayed for you all week. God! My, my thing is, there's a lot of things preachers can preach. 
This year, 17 years for me, almost 18. And if I wanted to preach, I can pretty much preach whatever I want. See, I don't like that. My thing is, Lord, let people come away from the service with answers from you. That's a little secret thing that now you know about me that I preach before or I pray before I preach. God, let, let the people that come, let them leave with an answer from you. And I prayed that. And he spoke so sweetly. Tell him the answer is sacrifice. Stand to your feet. Give the Lord a praise. Oh, Father, confirm your word. And God, give us the want to. Give us the desire. Give us the strength to bend our will to yours. Give us the ability to make the sacrifices in our lives we need to make. Lord, give us the wisdom and the insight so that there's no confusion, so that there's, there's, there's no question as to what we should do. Crystallize that thing so we can see it clearly. And then, Lord, give us the strength to make the sacrifices we need to make. I pray for all your people today. Lord, your word says, if anyone calls on the name of the Lord Jesus in faith, that they can be saved. Your word says in, in John, that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Lord, we know that if Judas would have been willing to confess his sins and repent, you would have even forgiven him. And so, Father, for any person that has committed sin here today, we stand on nothing but your word. And your word says, if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us. So, Father, those of us that have sinned and have sin in our conscience and have sin in our minds, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your mercy and your grace. The cross provided it and it made it available. Lord, for those in the room that have not accepted Jesus and have never been saved and welcomed into the family of God, your word says that whoever calls out verbally the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in faith shall be saved. And Lord, for those that confess with their mouth and they believe in their heart in the Lord Jesus, I pray the rain of salvation begins to water their soul. Lord, quench the thirsting and the, the aching places of their heart by your overwhelming love that nothing in this world can match. And Father, for everybody else that's leaving this place with nothing but a whole lot of hard decisions to make, I pray you strengthen them. 
I pray you let them know that you are near them. I pray your Holy Spirit wraps your presence around them and gives them, gives them the motivation to continue. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Give the Lord a great hand clap of praise. Amen. Amen. Sowing financially, sacrificially, it helps condition you. It helps work that muscle of when you have to make other sacrifices in your life. And next week, we're all preparing as a church to sow our most sacrificial seed of the year to honor Jesus Christ and his resurrection. It's something called resurrection seed. We've given out envelopes. I hope you've been preparing for it. But uh, if you haven't been preparing for it, get, a, get an offering, uh, a resurrection seed offering envelope. The ushers have them. Get a resurrection seed offering envelope and just put the very best seed that you can. Many of us are, we've been devoting and setting aside one day's income for the last several weeks to, to bring the Lord the equivalent of a week's salary. But if you're just now hearing about this, put the very best seed that you can because you can't go reap a harvest where you've not sown a seed. And if you won't sacrifice into the kingdom of God, financially, I highly doubt you'll sacrifice anywhere else in your life. So I encourage you to, to practice this tough discipline of sacrifice by participating in resurrection. See, the ushers have the envelopes. If you need one, raise your hand. There's a, next week, we're going to bring the resurrection seed next week, Good Friday and on Easter Sunday morning. Um, there's prayer cards in there. We want you to write out your prayer request because we believe that when we sow into the kingdom of God, God releases a harvest in our lives and we want to know how we can pray for you. So I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. Put your very best seed in that envelope. Pray over it all week and then bring it next, next Sunday, either Good Friday or Easter. And I believe God is going to release miracles and release what always happens when you put a good seed in good soil. You get a harvest. Amen. So I want to challenge you to do that. God bless you. If you have something you want to give today, you can come bring it now. May the Lord your God bless you. May he keep you. May he lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. May you go from this place in strength. May the peace of God hover not only over you, but over your family, over you when you're at work and over all you encounter. In Jesus' name we pray.